Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we love you. We look out into this beautiful place in which we live, and we think that it is just one small part of this planet made up of countless beautiful places that you have brought into existence, places that your eye always rests upon and that your hand always cares for. You take care of this world. Your eyes are always on us because we are in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're always taking care of us. Such things are beyond our comprehension. The wonder of your person, but the the greatness of your love towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Help our eyes to be open to see all the wonder in the world around us. Help us to see the wonder of the person of Christ in the hearts and lives of each one of us who name his name. And as you are constantly nurturing and caring for this world, may we be people that are constantly nurturing and seeking to take care of one another. May we be your instruments in this world to demonstrate your great love and mercy. Now we thank you that in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to accomplish in our hearts and minds, in our lifetime, all the things that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in his earthly ministry. That is your goal through the scripture and the church and with fellowship with one another and the sacraments and all the things that you have given us to make us like your son Jesus. And may we have a clear vision of him, triumphant over sin and Satan and death, seated at your right hand at a place of great glory, waiting to the time when you will send him forth to consummate all things and to make all things new, to look forward to a time when we will be like he is now in resurrection bodies, And that we will, in that great moment, begin to live in eternity in the world that you have in store for us without sin, without corruption, without Satan, without anything to offend. And that we will be there with you. We will be there with one another. We will be there with all the holy angels. And we will be there forever. Help us to live in this love. And we pray that you would make us ambassadors of this love in this place where we live. Help us to know you and help us to make you known. Be with those who are involved in missions around this world. Help them in all that they are doing to spread the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that men and women might be saved. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work powerfully to bring that to be. Now, Father, there are people here who have loved ones that do not yet know the Lord. Our prayer would be with them 
that you would bring these loved ones to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us mindful of those who are around us that need to know Christ. Help us to be instruments of that knowledge. Now, Father, for this service, for your call of Marion and Ginger to be in this place, for the call that you have on this church to minister in your name, we give you thanks and we ask that you would use us to that purpose and that we would be those people who love one another and love you well. And we make our prayer in Christ Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. It's a pleasure, as always, to be back with you this morning. And I would invite you to either take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel 23 or take your bulletin insert that contains the Scripture reading as we look at 2 Samuel 23. I love the life of David. I love David the man as he is presented to us in Scripture. There is no one person in the Bible that gets more uh, coverage than David. In fact, if Jesus was not in the Bible, you would have to conclude that the Bible was about David uh, for the amount of volume that he does get. And here, in the end of 2 Samuel, we draw to the end of the author of Samuel's account of the life and reign of King David. And uh, here at the end of this of, of 2 Samuel, we actually find a section of chapters, chapters 21 through 24, that are actually not chronological to everything that's come before. Uh, You actually get to 2 Samuel 21, and the author has kind of these closing chapters to kind of round out this portrait of David that he has been painting uh, throughout uh, both 1 and 2 Samuel. And in doing so, what he has been doing is giving overarching focus, the author of Samuel has, to the question, who may serve? As king of Israel, who is fit to serve as king of Israel? Who is the king that God's people need? And in many, many ways, David shows that to us. David shows us what we should be looking for in an ideal king. He shows us righteousness. He shows us faithfulness. He shows us grace. But if you know the story of David at all, you also know another thing that he has shown us. And it's that David himself cannot be the ideal king. David has such a prominent place in Scripture because of how beautifully he does point us to the ideal king. But when we look at his life, we know that he cannot be the ideal king. So as the book of Samuel uh, and the account of the life and reign of David draws to a conclusion, the author wants to round out this portrait that he's drawing to once and for all show us that there is an ideal king. And we can be pointed to him, even through the life and ministry of David. And what we're shown in Second Samuel 23 is through these men that were called the mighty men. So let, us, let me pray and then we'll read here in Second Samuel 23. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open it to us. That you would speak to us. That you would speak into our hearts. That you would impart your spirit in our midst. The words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, we pray. Amen. If you would, start in verse 8 there and read with me. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. 
Josheb Basabeth, a Tachimanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the, the, Her, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word for us this morning. I want to look just at this passage, maybe a passage you've never made it to as you've tried to read through the life and account of David, maybe familiar to some of you. But I want to look at three things in this passage. And the first one here is David's sigh. The sigh that David lets out, a longing for a drink from the water and the well at the gate of Bethlehem. So I told you this event is chronologically out of place. Uh, so we've got this story about David's mighty men. The, the whole chapter is chronicling the 30 of David, what is known as David's mighty men. And here we see three of them, David's most loyal soldiers. And um, the events, we, we probably, we can assume maybe that they took place around 2 Samuel 5. And if you remember 2 Samuel 5, David had just become king. David had just been finally recognized by all the elders of all of Israel and all of Judah that he was the true king. And so he's just now begun his reign in the longtime enemies of Israel and longtime enemies of David as well. The Philistines, they decide they're going to test the waters of this new regime. And so they come up and they come into the land and they're going to test David. And so David now is taking his stand, his first stand as the united king of Israel. He's going to uh, take, take on this test head on as the new king. And the story tells us three things about how, the situa- how bad the situation is starting there in verse 13. First, we read that it's harvest time. Then we read that David's in a cave. Not the first time he's been in a cave. It's not going to be the last time that he's in the cave. in a cave. And we read that the Philistines are in the valley of Rephaim. Those details alone tell us this, that Israel at this moment is, setting, is being set up for a perfect storm of disaster. Perfect storm. The enemy is so far into the country, into the valley of Rephaim, they are merely five miles from the capital. David cannot even sit on his throne 
He has to go out into the wilderness, into a cave because of the threat. And above all that, we read that it's harvest time. So, we, so assuming that if the Philistines were to stay where they are, they have a very real opportunity to wipe out the harvest and a year's worth of food for all of Israel. Disaster is staring Israel in the face. The reign of David and the kingdom already at the beginning of his reign on the verge of receiving a death blow. Now, we know the story of David, and we know that time and again David is faced uh, with conflict, and time and again David is faithful, and God is faithful, and David rises above. Uh, And especially as you get to the end of the account of his life, we know that that's kind of been the pattern of the story. But let the circumstances sink in for a moment. From the man on the ground point of view, disaster is staring everyone in the face. This is not a comfortable time. This is not a time to say, well, it's worked out before, it's going to work out again. It's not a time for that. The context is disaster. The context is the borderline despair of what is going to happen next. That is the context that leads David to say longingly, oh, that someone would get me a drink. Okay, now here's another key to the passage. David's not thirsty. David's not thirsty. Okay, we know David was a skilled warrior and a skilled military chief. I was never in the military, but I I think I could, I would hope I could figure this out on my own. You don't set up camp where there's no water. You can't do that, right? Uh, So we know that that, that a literal drink, a literal thirst is not really in view. So what we know then is that David's longing, his sigh, it's spiritual. It's deep. It's coming from his heart. It's coming from his soul. It's along the lines of what he says in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is thirsting for the promises of God to be real in his life. Because as he surveys the landscape, they seem far away. He is longing, he is thirsting for the promises of God to be real in his life. I don't know, um, have you ever seen this movie, The Shawshank Redemption? Turn on your TV tomorrow, it'll probably be on, it's on every other day. Uh, Great movie, Shawshank Redemption, where Andy, the main character, is sitting in the prison yard with his good friend Red. And they're talking about what, we, what they would do if they ever got out. Two men seemingly facing life in prison. What would you do if you ever got out? And this is what Andy says. He says, you know where I'd go? Zawantaneo, a place in Mexico right on the Pacific. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific. It's a place that has no memory. A warm place with no memory. That's where I'd go. And it's in that moment, it's a beautiful scene, and it's a beautiful quote. It's in that moment that you get something about Andy. Mexico and the Pacific Beach for Andy is not some dream vacation. It's hope itself. It's a reason to go on living, right? It's a shining hope in the darkness. 
in the drab and the gray of the prison walls. David's cry for a drink is just like that. We've seen, if you read through the life of David, you see over and over and over how committed God was to David. He was committed to him as a little shepherd boy. He was committed to him as a little runt that goes up against Goliath. He was committed to him as Saul, um, his predecessor, seeks his life. He was committed to him even in the midst of his own sin. Yet despite the amazing promises and faithfulness of God, they all seem threatened. And David looks weak and Israel is threatened and he begins to ask and he begins to wonder, am I really cut out for this? Am I really the one that is going to lead God's people? Am I really the one that is going to stand the test of time and conflict? Because for David in this moment, here it is. His circumstances seem more real, more present than the promises of God themselves. It's the circumstances that David is encountering that seem to be shaping his life, that seem to be ruling his life, that seem to be dictating what is going to happen in his life. And he's longing for God's promises then to be more of the reality. And here's the thing. We all feel this. We all feel this. I don't know what it is for you right now. I don't know what it's been for you this past week, this past month, this past year, this past couple of years. We know, you know that God loves you. You know that God cares for you. You know that God sent His Son for you. But it could be that all this past week, this past month, this past year has done for you. Your whole life has done for you. It's proved to you that no matter how hard you try, you fail. To be your marriage, you've been working so hard week in and week out and nothing is getting better. It could be your parenting. You have no idea why your children have gone the way they have gone. It could be your money. It could be your retirement. It could be anything, right? You just long for God's promises to be more real than the circumstances that stare you in the face. Or you know God promises, you know that God promises never to leave you or forsake you. But for whatever reason, you've never felt more lonely in your life. We're all longing for a drink from the well of Bethlehem. And the thing is, the sad thing, the really sad thing is, some of us don't even know that we're thirsty. But we're all longing for that sweet water. And for David and for us, that sweet water is the grace of the promises of God. That they would be real. That they would be the thing that rule and reign in our lives and not our circumstances. That is David's sigh. That is where David's sigh is coming from. The second thing I want you to see here is the mighty men's response. That's the beautiful part of the story, the mighty men's response. So I told you this whole chapter is a a chronicle of David's 30 mighty men, but here we read about three of them who hear this cry, and they're going to do something about it. And so uh, why chronicle these these 30 mighty men is that if you remember when David first fled into the wilderness because of King Saul... There were men who rallied to him. 
And they became what, is, what history records for us as David's mighty men. And the stories about the three we read here and others, they show us that these guys, these were the best of the best. These were the special ops, right? These were the special forces. A favorite TV show of mine years ago uh, came on the Discovery Channel. It was called Surviving the Cut. I've always been pretty uh, fascinated with the men and women of our military. But this show just really hit the spot for me. Because what the show chronicled week in and week out was the, the tests and trials that the men of our armed forces have to go through to be a part of the elite. All these different elite branches of our military, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, SEAL snipers, Special Forces divers, all of them, right? You're watching all these tests and trials you go through, and you, you watch this show and you just you smile because you think, man, I don't care what else is going on in the rest of our country. Our country is in good hands with these men, right? David's mighty men were such men. They were the best. They were loyal. They were fierce. They were zealous. And so we read, and this is the amazing part, that we read in one verse, these guys were just told that they broke through the Philistines and they went and they got the water. We don't get the detail. We're kind of longing for the detail. We want to know what happened. We want like the Braveheart scene. We want to see the battle. But we're not given the details. Just one verse we're told. And so the mighty men broke through. They just did it. But you think about what's going on here. There was a garrison at uh, Bethlehem. So that's at least 20 soldiers. They, had to, they would have to break through the lines of the Philistines. And then when they get to, the, to Bethlehem, they'd have to cut through at least 20 men and hold them off while they get water. Think about the Philistines, okay? The Philistines, all of a sudden, these three guys come charging at them. And they're thinking, okay, is the attack on? Do we got to hold it? What are they after? Are they after our food? Are they after our gold? They're after water? What is going on? Okay, now it's over. They've won. It's an amazing scene to think about. What these mighty men went through to get this water. And so they returned to their king after this mighty act. And what does David do? He refuses to drink it. And we think, are you paying attention? You didn't even command them. They just went and did it. And not only does he refuse to drink it, he pours it out. And we're thinking, what are you doing? But there's actually a key for us. If you look there in verse 16, we read, he didn't just pour it out. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went and risked their lives. He poured it out before the Lord. It was a drink offering. It's a language of sacrifice. It was an act of worship. These men wouldn't have been offended. They would have been honored at David's act here. This is what David's saying. David is saying, I realize that because of the sacrifice of these men, that God is with me. You see what the men had done. David was longing for the promises of God to be more real in his life than his circumstances. And so his men go out and they show him just that. And David is saying, I don't care what the circumstances are now. I know that the grace of the promises of God are more real. God had spoken a word of grace to him through these men and through their act. These guys weren't just daredevils. They're not just going out for the thrill of it. But they knew what they were doing, betting their lives on the promises of God by devoting themselves to their king. 
chosen king, the anointed king. And so because of this story and because of other stories like it, these men become known as mighty. So it begs an interesting question. What does it mean to be mighty of God? What does it mean to be mighty in God's eyes? And I think we can see it. And I stole these two points because I liked them so much and I'm going to give them to you. I think we can see at least two things through how these mighty men act and how David responds. And the first one is this. What does it mean to be mighty of God? I think the first thing is this. Recognizing that everything is a gift from God solely as a result of his promises. Recognizing that everything is a gift from God solely as a result of his promises even when my circumstances say otherwise. That's really what David's pouring out is about. The water isn't, he's saying, this water is not some trophy for me. It's not some trophy of these men to celebrate their mightiness. No, it is a gift from God, so I will pour it out to him. These men... Too. They weren't going out to play the hero. They went knowing that the promises of God were at stake. You know, and this is really good for us because we think of mightiness. We tend to think of mightiness in these terms of these big acts of faith. And this is a big act of faith on the part of these three men, of course, right? But we think that when we think of mightiness, that that's all it involves. But what if, what if the source of true mightiness What if true mightiness in God that actually produces these big acts is something much more ordinary? Something much more routine? Something that I rely on on Monday morning when I get up to start another week. And I'm right back at it Tuesday. And right back at it Wednesday and Thursday and so on. What if typical mightiness of God looks like banking my life on his promises in my ordinary life? My day in, day out life. What if real mightiness can look at my accomplishments and say, my accomplishments, what I have accomplished and achieved in this life does not define me. It's not going to define me today. It won't define me tomorrow. Therefore, I can pour them out before the Lord. What if how well I am doing in this life, how well I have done for myself, how well I am doing at this moment, what if that doesn't define me? Therefore, I can pour it out before the Lord. What if how many people know me, approve of me, approve of who I am, approve of what I'm doing, what if that doesn't define me? Therefore, I can pour it out before the Lord. You know, I think most reasonable people would agree that greed is a cancer on any society. Any society we would long to set up or see flourish, we would agree that greed would be a cancer of that society. But we have to understand, I see this on the college campus week in and week out. We have built something that has been termed a meritocracy. A meritocracy where everything is about what I merit in this life. Where everything that I am is defined by what I do. Right? Living and believing the lie that we are what we do. And this is why I think it's so pertinent to take up on this day, at this moment in the life and ministry of this congregation. 
What makes a man mighty? What makes a pastor mighty? What makes a shepherd mighty? Is it solely defined on what he does, on what he accomplishes, on what he achieves? What if the only thing that will break us of our greed, the only thing that will break us on defining ourselves solely and completely on our achievements, what if the only thing that can break us of defining ourselves by our accomplishments is by realizing that all we are and all we have is a gift. All of it. How easy my upbringing was. How hard my upbringing was. How hard I had to work in college. How easy I had it in college. All of it, no matter where it was on the spectrum, was a gift. Totally outside your control. Some of us may need to admit that at times the biggest problem we have with God, or maybe even the reason that we are not a Christian, is that we have yet to believe the promises and to see that everything is founded upon them and them alone. The second thing, what does mightiness of God look like? We see in these mighty men, and it's that their king's wish was their, his, was their command. Their king's wish was their command. David wasn't giving them a dare. He didn't even command them. It was just a verbal expression of a deep longing. And these three men were so devoted that there was no difference to them between suggestion and command. They rose and they went and they did it. You know what? In in that action, we see what Tim Keller refers to as the biggest difference between the Christian and the ethical religious person. The biggest difference between an ethical, a Christian and an ethical religious person. The religious ethical person asks, what is required of me? Who is this God? What does he say? What is required of me? I need these things that religion offers me. So what do I need to do or to be to get it? And so that is then to concentrate on the rules or the regulations. The Christian, however is focused on the heart of God. The religious ethical person says, what do you want me to do? The Christian says, what does God love? The religious person is looking for the reward. The Christian is looking for the joy and the pleasure of God. And that in and of itself is the reward. Look at verse 16. Look at at the transition here. Oh, that someone would get me a drink. And then all of a sudden, then they broke through. There's no hint of hesitation or discussion. Their devotion was spontaneous and automatic, and that's how much they loved their king. I don't have to look far on the college campus for a good illustration of this, and maybe you remember this. You know, at the beginning of a semester, uh, you go to, go to your first day of class is what known as, what's known as syllabus day, right? Where the, all you're really going to do is the professor is going to hand out the syllabus and you're going to learn what does this professor expect? What does this re- professor require? What is expected of me? What is required of me to get the grade that I want in this class, right? What are the assignments? Um, where do I have to fall in line to measure up? And so you find those things out through the syllabus or whatever, and you, you're set and you're on your way. But now imagine that same student has begun dating someone at the beginning of that semester. See, when you begin dating someone, 
You're not waiting for a syllabus, right? You're not waiting for the rules and expectations. No, you're in pursuit. You're after the heart. You're after the affection of that other person. You do research on your own and you follow through with anything that might make that person happy. Because your ultimate question is, how can I bring this person joy? Because their joy is my joy. What is true mightiness in God's eyes? Seeing our lives as gifts from God founded entirely on his promises and loving God in such a way that my relationship to him is founded not upon what he gives me, but upon him and him alone. So we've seen David's side. We've seen the mighty men's response. But the last thing I want to ask is what is the key to being mighty? What is the key? What is, what is the key to being mighty? You see, if we end here, if we end here with that's mightiness, be mighty. We're crushed. Maybe not now, but soon enough. You're crushed. Because the more you try, <laughs> the more you see something very clearly. That you're not mighty. And that you don't measure up. Everything that the author of First and Second Samuel has recorded has been recorded in such a way that it has an order to give us this well-rounded portrait of David. And in so doing, through that portrait, we are pointed beyond David to someone beyond David, the ideal king who really would be the perfect king. And you have two choices. You have two choices in how you treat the Bible, or the Old Testament especially, and its characters. You think about David and Goliath, Jonah and the fish, Daniel and the lion's den. And we tend, what we tend to do, let's be honest, is read them like Aesop's fables. What is the end to which the story was written for me? What is the moral? What am I supposed to get out of this? And so we end up reducing pretty much every story and every court character. Either be like David or don't be like David. And we just read the characters as examples of what to do and what not to do. And we certainly get that. We certainly do. But if that is all that we do, all the Bible then becomes to us is just a big wagging finger of where you do and don't measure up. That's what makes what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 after his resurrection to those two bewildered disciples. It makes it amazing what he says here. We read, Luke tells us, That beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the reason that Jesus' death had wrecked his disciples, especially these two on the road to Damascus as they're trying to process it all, and the reason that they thought life was falling apart is that they didn't understand how God works. Because they'd only seen the Scriptures on a moralistic level. They hadn't seen that in every portion of Scripture, that every prophet, every king, every priest, every servant, every hero, every liberator, every one of them was not to serve to show them what they were supposed to do, but was there to point them to the true prophet, the true king, the true priest, the true hero. In other words, 
You can either read the Bible moralistically as mainly about us. And you will leave the Bible every time feeling crushed. The Bible will not be life to you. It will be the death of you. Because you're reminded of all the ways that you aren't mighty. Or you can read the Bible as Jesus did, by the way, I would say. Redemptively. As about Him and what He's done and what He will do. You see, that's when we see David and his mighty men. We see that they're just a picture. They're just a shadow of the mighty man himself. That there is this one big overarching story from cover to cover of this word that God has given us about the mighty men, the the mighty man, the one who heard your sigh and who knew your longing. And he rose and he went to battle for you. And you see, the thing about Jesus is Jesus didn't go at the risk of his life. Jesus went knowing it would cost him his life. The beautiful part about this story is that when the three mighty men return, David is a changed man. He's overwhelmed with the love of his men and gratefulness at the grace of God. And so he is able to pour it out. Before him. You see, we could leave right now and we could ask, what is it that you are willing or will be willing to pour out to God? What could you pour out that could compare to what he poured out for you? You see, only when you see him as your great mighty man can you even begin to think about pouring anything out? Can you begin to think about being generous instead of selfish? Loving and caring instead of controlling? Confident and secure instead of anxious and depressed? Only when you begin to taste the mightiness of the love of the true King That you begin to realize that he is worth it. That I really can follow him. I really can obey everything he said. I really can do what he says. Even when everything in my life says the opposite. Because I've begun to see that his promises really are true. And they really are for me. I would just ask you, do you believe that this morning? Will you cling to it this morning? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the true mighty man, our Savior, our priest, our King, our prophet. The one who gave his life, who gave everything he was that we might be with him that we might be conformed to his image that we might be co-heirs with him father would you even give us a glimpse of that truth this morning that we would believe it 
that we would know it, that we would rest in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.